One of the greatest women in the history of Christianity was a lady by the name of Monica, or Saint Monica as she's often called. Monica is best known to us because of her son Augustine, who went on to become one of the most important theologians in the history of the church. He happens to be a personal hero of mine because of his strong stand on God's sovereignty and on humanity's desperate need for God's enabling and saving grace. But in spite of the fact that Monica's legacy is sometimes overshadowed by her more famous son, she was a tremendous Christian believer in her own right, and she is worthy of our deepest admiration. Monica was born around 330 A.D. in the North African city of Thagas, which is located in the modern-day country of Algeria. Today, Algeria is dominated by the religion of Islam, but back in Monica's time, North Africa was dominated by the Christian faith. Monica grew up in a Christian culture and was herself a very vibrant believer who maintained a close relationship with Christ throughout her life. As Monica grew into her teenage years, she was married off to a Roman citizen named Patricius, who was not a follower of Christ, and together this couple had three children. Like many men of his day who are not believers, men who are pagans, men who are worshipers of the Roman pantheon, Patricius was quick-tempered. He was often unfaithful to his wife. But throughout their married life, Monica consistently witnessed to her husband by a virtuous life that reflected the truth and the light of the gospel. She also had a ministry to other Christian women in her community who were living in a similar situation, counseling them on how they should relate to and how they should love their non-believing husbands who are often prone to violence and abuse. And although this man, Patricius, resisted Monica's faith and Monica's God for most of their married life, as a result of her consistent witness, he was eventually brought by God's grace to saving faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized into the North African church. Something that I'm sure was a great encouragement for both Monica and for Augustine. Monica's testimony as a Christian believer who is married to a non-believing pagan illustrates beautifully one of the biblical principles Paul is going to teach us this morning as we open up the Word and continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and to listen carefully as I reread the first 16 verses of this text. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. And I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession and not as a commandment, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, not I, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned last time, we are now entering a new section of this letter to the Corinthian church where Paul is responding very specifically to questions and concerns that were brought to him through a letter that the Corinthians had written. And In the remaining portion of this letter, Paul's agenda will be driven almost entirely by the various questions the Corinthians have raised. And as we'll see, these questions cover a very wide range of subjects. From issues of sexuality and celibacy, to issues of food and drink and idolatry, to issues of gender roles and head coverings, to issues of controversy surrounding the Lord's Supper, to issues of controversy surrounding the gift of tongues and prophecy, to issues of confusion surrounding the bodily resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of all believers. And in the coming weeks and months, we will have the opportunity together to investigate all of these matters and more as we continue verse by verse through this inspired book. But Paul's first order of business, as we know, is to deal with the sexual and the marital dysfunction within this church family. In previous weeks, we've seen some of the sexual problems that were plaguing this church with some of the members who had given themselves over to immorality. But last Lord's Day, we, we saw that there was a second group within the church that had begun to advocate the opposite extreme. Deeply jaded by all the sexual sin they had witnessed in the church, deeply influenced by the worldview of Plato and the ancient Greek philosophers, this second group had concluded that the only way that a Christian could live a pure life before God was to reject their sexuality altogether. Complete and utter abstinence was being held up in Corinth as a Christian ideal, and these people had expressed their opinion in writing, saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, of course, with the proper qualifications, I think we all could agree with that statement, but the problem was that this group in the church was not only making celibacy a hard and fast rule for the single people, but also for the married couples. And as a result, some of the Corinthian wives were refusing to maintain sexual relations with their husbands and vice versa. An unbiblical and legalistic approach to sexuality was destroying marriages in Corinth, and Paul writes this chapter to help straighten things out. 
He is writing this chapter in an effort to rescue marriages that are on the brink of collapse and heading towards divorce like so many marriages in our own time. Now last week I also mentioned the fact that Paul's general advice to everyone in this church, whether married or single or divorced, is summarized in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul's advice, generally speaking, was that married people should remain married and that single people should remain single. But as we make our way through this passage, we'll see very clearly Paul is not making a rigid and wooden law. The main principle here in the text is very clear, but it is also evident Paul recognizes and allows for exceptions as he deliberately turns to each of these different groups in the church and speaks specifically to them. Verses 1 to 7, Paul speaks primarily to married couples in the church. In verses 8 to 11, he speaks to those who are either widowed or divorced. Verses 12 to 16, he turns to those who, like Monica, were married to non-believers. In verse 25 to the end of the chapter, he addresses those who have never been married before. And so as we move progressively through the chapter, we see that Paul is giving marital counsel to each and every group that was represented in the church, from the married people, to the single people, to the divorced people, to the widowed people. And Because of that, there is something for each and every one of us to glean from this text in our, in our culture, in our church, and in our modern age. Now last week, I think you'll recall, we dealt with Paul's teaching about the maintenance of ongoing sexual relationships within the marriage covenant. For married people, the principle that we saw last time was that they remain in a healthy and normative sexual relationship. And now this morning, as we pick up in verse 7, we'll discover yet another principle that if possible, we should all remain content with our present marital status, whether we are single or whether we are married. The second group of Christians that Paul addresses here in chapter 7 are those in the church who were previously married but are now separated from their spouse either through death or perhaps even through divorce. Have another look with me at verses 7 to 11 of our text. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, I mentioned this last time, but it's important to reserve right at the outset here in verse 7, Paul does not view the celibate state as any more spiritual than the married state, nor does he view the married state as any more spiritual than the celibate state. For practical reasons, for ministry reasons, Paul had a personal preference to live the rest of his life as a bachelor, but you'll notice he describes both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. One gift that is given to some and another gift that is given to others. And so, brothers and sisters, whether you're here this morning as a married person or as a single person, we must realize on the authority of this text, we each possess a gift from God, we each stand on equal footing before our Creator and Redeemer. 
Your marital status does not change your spiritual status or your your value in the eyes of God. And it's important that we are very clear about that right up front because sometimes we don't always give that impression in the church. In the early church, there was a tendency to value singleness and celibacy over marriage. In the contemporary church, I think that we may have drifted to the opposite extreme to the extent that sometimes our singles in the church might not feel as though they belong or as though they are accepted just as they are. This should never be, friends. And we need to carefully guard ourselves and our churches against the tendency to value our families and to value our married couples more than we value our singles. As Paul will tell us later on in the chapter, as we've all experienced in our personal lives, there are challenges to being married and challenges to being single, just as there are blessings to being married and blessings to being single. One of the struggles that single people may encounter as they walk through life is a feeling of persistent loneliness or perhaps a desire for children or for sexual intimacy that cannot be fulfilled righteously apart from monogamous heterosexual marriage. On the other hand, one of the struggles that married people sometimes face is the difficulty of balancing family responsibilities with spiritual priorities. Many of us human beings tend to assume that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Married people wishing that they were single again and trying to get divorced and single people wishing that they were married and refusing to do things according to God's plan. Paul wants us to understand here in this text, there is no such thing as a trouble-free life. Not if you're married and not if you're single. If you're married, you're going to have challenges to face in this life. And if you're single, you will also have challenges. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul wants us to see and helps us to see both of these states are good gifts from God and they do not make us either inferior to one another or superior to one another. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In the opening verses of our text, Paul challenges the legalists and the sexual ascetics in Corinth. He commands the married couples to give their conjugal rights and not to deprive one another. But now in verse 8, Paul turns to those in the church who are previously married but now find themselves in a single and celibate condition, the unmarried and the widows. Because Paul uses a rather general Greek word in this verse that means unmarried, many readers assume that he is addressing all unmarried people without distinction, but in the context and in the flow of this chapter, it is far more likely that Paul is speaking in verse 8 to those men and women in the church who are previously married, but now find themselves in a single and celibate state through no fault of their own. Now, the reason that this is more likely is because Paul pairs the word unmarried with the word widow. And that is an indication that he is speaking here specifically to the widows and the widowers in the church. Or perhaps he is even speaking here to those in the church who have been divorced on biblical grounds. Now, later on, near the end of the chapter, Paul will turn and speak to those who have never before been married. But for now, he has a different audience in mind. The widows, the widowers and the innocent parties in a divorce. Those men and women in the church who were previously married, but are now single. Now aside from the good advice that Paul gives to these Christians in verse 8, verse 8 is significant because it gives us a rare glimpse into Paul's personal life. 
You'll notice here in verse 8 that Paul seems to personally identify with this group of Christians. A clue that although Paul is now single and celibate, he was once a married man. And he is speaking to us about marriage and celibacy from his own personal experience. Culturally, historically, we know that in the ancient Jewish world, it was very unusual for a man to remain single and not to get married. The Jewish people who lived around the time of Paul and Jesus Christ tended to view God's words in Genesis 2 as a mandate for marriage and procreation, and many of them believed that the subsequent bearing and raising of children was nothing short of a divine commandment. In Paul's Jewish culture, an unmarried man would have been looked at with a great deal of suspicion, perhaps even with disdain. We also know from historical sources that members of the Jewish Sanhedrin were required by law to be married. And in Acts 28, we learn that Paul was a voting member of the Sanhedrin and therefore a married man. The weight of biblical evidence suggests strongly that Paul was at one time married, but that somehow after his conversion, he ended up single again. Now, there are really only two possibilities that can explain what happened to Paul. Either Paul's wife had passed away or else Paul's wife had abandoned him and divorced him as a result of his sudden and dramatic conversion to Christ. It's impossible for us to know which of these two options is the right one, but either way, Paul understood what it was like to be married and Paul understood what it was like to be single. And it is very possible, friends, that Paul understood what it was like to be abandoned and divorced. And so we are not listening here to some detached ivory tower theologian, but from a man with personal first-hand experience. And Paul's counsel to those men and women who find themselves in this kind of situation is grounded in the principle that we've already observed, that the best way forward for the previously married is to remain as they are, to remain single, to remain celibate. From Paul's point of view, there are many practical benefits that come from being a single person. And for Paul, the most important factor of all was the freedom that singleness gave him to serve the Lord unencumbered, not burdened down with the anxieties and the responsibilities of married life. You know, there's a sense in which Paul can and does agree with that Corinthian slogan that we saw in verse 1, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. On a purely practical and pragmatic level, Paul saw the advantages of celibacy. And as we observed last week in verse 26, the church in Corinth was undergoing some kind of unique distress that was making the single and celibate life even more desirable. Last week I suggested on the basis of historical records, there was a severe famine sweeping through the Greek world around 51 AD when this letter was being written. That famine would have made it exceptionally difficult for a married man to provide for his wife and children. It's evident that Paul's advice here in 1 Corinthians 7 is being influenced by unique historical factors that are no longer pressing down on us today, or at least not to the same extent. But regardless, the broad and general principles still apply. Paul agreed on the practical level there were advantages to celibacy, but at the same time, he adamantly denies that singleness confers even one ounce of spiritual advantage over marriage. That's why Paul goes on in verse 9 of our text to qualify the general principle of remarrying. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, Paul says, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is a realist with both of his feet on the ground. He recognizes that celibacy is a special gift from God, that the single life is not for everyone. Certainly some of the people in this church who had lost their spouse through death or fallen victim to a divorce that was not their fault would be able to remain happily single for the rest of their lives. But there were also people in this church who had a greater struggle with sexual temptation and who had a deep desire for the companionship that comes with marriage. Paul's advice for those Christians who do not have the gift of celibacy is that they would get remarried rather than falling into sexual sin. In these kinds of situations, there is nothing wrong with remaining single. And there is nothing wrong with getting remarried. And if the Lord were to bring the right person into their life, there is no reason why they should not do so. Now in a moment, we're going to see there are other situations where a divorced Christian cannot get remarried, whether they struggle with sexual temptation or not. But if you are either widowed or divorced on biblical grounds, the Scripture does allow for remarriage. And if you compare this text in 1 Corinthians 7 with Paul's words in 1 Timothy 5.14, you will discover there are situations where Paul actually believes that remarriage is the best way to go. Specifically, he says that younger widows should get remarried if they are still able to bear children to raise a family. Context, as always, is key here. We must be cautious not to make Paul say any more or any less than he actually intends. For Paul, the single life has advantages of serving Christ. But if those advantages cannot be enjoyed without falling into sexual sin, it is far better to get married again, to take on those extra family responsibilities. Or as Paul puts it, it is better to marry than to burn. Well, moving on now to verse 10, we see that Paul has something important to say to us about the subject of divorce. Let me reread those two verses. Verse 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Over the course of my ministry here at Rosedale, I've had the opportunity to speak about divorce a couple times. One time when we were going through the Old Testament book of Malachi, a second time when we were studying the Gospel of Mark. And now we come to, to Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians 7, another passage in the Word of God where the Holy Spirit gives us instruction on a very difficult and sensitive subject that has touched many lives and many lives in this very congregation. I'd like to be able to tell you this morning that marital breakdown and divorce isn't something that happens within our Christian circles. But if I told you that, I would be lying. As Christians, we struggle in our marriages just as non-Christians struggle in their marriages. And although divorce is never something that honors and glorifies the Lord, it is a reality in our world. It is a reality in the church. Fact is that east of Eden, we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And the brokenness, the fallenness of sin affects every area of our lives up to and including our marriages. In verse 10, Paul is facing up to the grim reality of marital breakdown in Corinth. Marriages that are on the brink of ruin. 
And Paul's instruction here in verses 10 and 11 is essentially a restatement of Jesus' teaching on divorce that we find in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. In both Jesus' teaching and in Paul's teaching, the bottom line is exactly the same. Christians who are enduring a troubled marriage are to remain as they are. If you are a born-again Christian who is married to another born-again Christian, God's will is that you remain married to the person and to patiently and perseveringly work through your differences and your difficulties according to the biblical model and pattern. And if you are ever tempted to conclude that you married the wrong person, all you need to do is pull out your marriage certificate and read the name that is written beside yours. That's why Paul says, to the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Brothers and sisters, the normative biblical pattern for marriage that God established in the Garden of Eden is that the man and the woman become one flesh. And the implication of that is that marriage was intended by God to be a permanent and an unbreakable relationship. By the way, just as the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church is a permanent and unbreakable relationship. It was never God's design that a man and wife would get separated and divorced. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew and Mark, divorce was permitted for one reason and only for one reason. Because of the hardness and the depravity of the human heart. Divorce is sorrowful. Divorce is a tragic allowance that God has made in a world that is broken by sin. And if you have ever gone through a divorce, or if you are currently going through a divorce, you know how difficult, you know how sorrowful it can be. The emotions that go along with a separation and a divorce are not unlike the emotions that go when we lose a loved one. There is grief. There is a deep sense of loss and mourning because you have been torn apart from your other half. Our God understands the pain of divorce. He understands the devastation that divorce causes in our homes. And that's one reason why the book of Malachi says that God hates it so much. It is a distortion of His design for marriage. It is a tragedy that always brings grief and pain and heartbreak. Now in verse 10, Paul is appealing directly to the teaching of Jesus over in Matthew and Mark. That's why he says here that it is the Lord Jesus who is giving this charge and not he himself. Some people have read that verse, that parenthetical comment in verse 10, and have concluded that Paul's words carry less authority than Christ's words, but that is not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying. For some issues, such as divorce, Paul could appeal directly to the teaching of Jesus. In other cases where the Lord did not give the specifics, Paul will speak with the authority of an apostle. He will speak with the authority that was given to him by Jesus Christ and through the revelation of the Spirit. And So please don't walk away from this text this morning with the impression that we ought to take Jesus' words very seriously, that we ought to take Paul's words with a grain of salt. Because that would be a very serious misunderstanding of this verse. Paul speaks and Paul writes with the authority of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus spoke with the authority of the Spirit. And if you don't believe me, have a look down the page to verse 40 where Paul tells us point blank that he too has the Spirit of God. Well, back to the main point. 
As a general rule, divorce is not the way forward for a marriage that's in trouble. But Paul recognizes that in this fallen and broken world, not every Christian marriage will be preserved intact. And so immediately after giving the solemn charge not to pursue a divorce, Paul gives a qualification. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Very difficult here to reconstruct the historical situation that was happening in Corinth, but it seems that some of the women in this church were leaving their husbands for reasons that Jesus did not specifically address in his teaching. And in light of these questionable separations and divorces in the church, Paul is now going to give a word of authoritative instruction. You may recall that in Matthew 19, Jesus gives one exception where divorce and remarriage can be rightly pursued by a Christian, and that is in the case of sexual immorality. If one spouse in the marriage has been unfaithful to the other spouse and has committed a sexual sin that has permanently broken trust, the innocent party is permitted by God to get a divorce and presumably to remarry. That is the the one and the only biblical ground for divorce that you will find anywhere in the teaching of Jesus Christ. But here in the Corinthian church, some of the wives and some of the husbands were divorcing one another for different reasons. Perhaps some of the women in the Corinthian church were escaping abusive relationships where they or their children were in danger. Maybe some of them had embraced the ascetic lifestyle and were refusing to be sexually involved with their spouses. Or maybe some of them were just plain unhappy in their marriages and wanted to be free, like so many people do today. But whatever the specifics might have been, Paul tells them that the divorced person is to remain unmarried so that he or she might one day be reconciled with their husband or their wife. In other words, if you are a Christian who is divorced or separated for any other reason than a sexual violation against you, you do not have the biblical option of seeking a second marriage. And if you cross-reference and compare this text with Matthew 19 or Mark 10, you will discover that divorce and remarriage on non-biblical grounds counts as a form of adultery in the eyes of God. Now, adultery is not the unforgivable sin, but it is a serious sin. And because it is a serious sin, we need to take it seriously in the church. And if you are a Christian who has been divorced and remarried on non-biblical grounds, the call of God on your life is to repent of that sin and then to receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that can only come through the cross of Christ. As much as we may want to, we cannot go back and change the past, but we can live for the glory of God in the present. And what that means for those of you who are divorced or separated on non-biblical grounds is that you will remain single and you will seek to be reconciled with your spouse. Now, there may indeed be good reasons for a couple to separate from one another for a limited time. For example, in the case of physical or emotional abuse or when the children are in harm's way because of an abusive father or mother. But in these cases, the most that a Christian is permitted to do biblically is to live separately and to remain single in the hopes that the marriage will one day be saved. I know that for some of us, that is not an easy thing to hear. 
I know that is not a comfortable thing to hear. But that is the teaching of the Word of God on this subject. And we must as Christians take our stand upon the authority of this inspired Word and not upon the whims and the preferences of secular culture. In a world and a culture that is absolutely plagued by divorce and marital strife, we must show the lost world around us there is a better way. We must show the lost world that divorce and remarriage is not the answer to unhappiness and discontent in our lives. The Word of God speaks a far better word than that, friends. It shows us a far better way. We come now to the final section of our text that I want to cover this morning in verses 12 to 16, where the Apostle Paul turns his attention to men and women who find themselves in spiritually mixed marriages. And let's have another look at those verses, 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be, let it be so. In such cases, the brother's sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Although we hear today of Christians who like to date non-Christians, we hear today of Christians who seek to marry non-Christians contrary to the revealed will of God, this is not the scenario that Paul has in mind in these verses. In the Corinthian church, there were quite a number of spiritually mixed marriages, not because of unwise choices the believers had made, but rather because one person had become a Christian sometime after they had got married. If you want to see an example of this kind of scenario in a more modern day setting, I'd encourage you to sign out the Case for Christ DVD that is now available in our church library. This movie is about Lee Strobel's journey out of atheism and into the Christian faith that began when his wife submitted herself to Jesus Christ and started attending an evangelical church. And if you take the time to watch that movie, you will see how much strain this sudden conversion put on their marriage to the point where Lee actually threatens to divorce his wife if she does not get over her religious delusions and return back to the way things were before. Although there are certainly notable exceptions, marriages where marriages where only one of the spouses is a Christian can indeed be very, very difficult to navigate. And probably some of us here in this room know that from first-hand experience. I've known a number of people who are in this situation, some of whom knowingly married a non-Christian contrary to the teaching of the Bible and some of whom came to know the Lord after they were married. Now some of these marriages, by God's grace, have had marvelous endings where the unbeliever comes to saving faith. But other marriages have been very difficult, even heart-wrenching, as a believer faces the rejection and the ridicule of their spouse and is unable to share with their spouse this most important area of our life. 
Many of the believers in ancient Corinth found themselves in situations just like this. And because Jesus did not give it specific instruction on what to do, Paul will now give the church an authoritative apostolic word. Most important thing that Paul says here in the concluding verses is that the believing spouse should not seek a divorce on the basis of religious conflict. Verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Although there are some situations where the non-believer will not consent to remain married to to a committed Christian, there are many other cases where the non-believing spouse will be very accepting and very accommodating even if they do not fully understand or fully agree with the believer's conviction. But as you can imagine, this can be a very tricky situation. But so long as the non-believer is willing to continue on in the marriage, Paul says it is acceptable in the eyes of God, the believer must never seek to end that marriage through divorce. But if, on the other hand, the non-believing spouse refuses to live peacefully with the believing spouse and either abandons or divorces him or her, Paul makes an allowance here in the text for the innocent party to seek a second marriage. This is the second biblical ground for remarriage after divorce. There are only two of them in the Bible. It is either sexual immorality that has been committed against you, or else it is abandonment of the Christian spouse by the non-Christian spouse. Those are the only two situations, and anything outside of that, remarriage is off limits for the Christian. Now in Corinth, it appears that some of the believers in the church were the ones who were trying to get out of these mixed marriages, and probably this impulse was especially strong among the ascetics. They wanted uh, to be spiritually pure, and maybe they felt that they were being contaminated by the non-believer. Some of them were probably refusing to have sex with the non-believing spouse. Others may have been taking the next step and actually seeking to secure a divorce. And so Paul steps into this messy situation and he corrects the theology of the Corinthians in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. In the Old Testament Scriptures, people who were ritually clean became ritually contaminated whenever they touched something that was unclean. And it seems that some of the Corinthians were bringing this Old Testament idea into their marriages. They were afraid of being spiritually contaminated by the non-believing spouse and thus made unacceptable in the eyes of God. But here in verse 14, Paul takes that faulty theology and flips it on his head by telling him it actually works the opposite way in our marriages. It's not the Christian spouse who is made unclean by the non-Christian. Rather, it's the non-Christian who is made clean by the Christian. It's the influence of the Christian in the home, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the home that exerts the primary influence and that presses in upon the non-believer in a very powerful way. And very often, as some of us are well aware, God in His grace and mercy works redemptively through the faithful witness of the believer so that the spouse and the other family members are brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into all the weird and wacky interpretations of this text that have been put forward over the years, but I do want to mention a couple things as we close our time in the Word. Some people have suggested on the basis of these verses that the non-believing spouse is saved by proxy because of their union with the believer. 
But that understanding of the word sanctify in the verse quite simply will not do because of what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Whether or not the non-believing spouse will eventually be converted is an open question from our limited human perspective. But what is clear from the text is that nobody is or ever has been regenerated or converted simply by being married to a Christian. If the non-believing spouse will be saved and brought into the kingdom of God, they will be saved just like anyone else by repenting of their sin, by placing their faith and their trust in Christ alone. There's a second group of interpreters who try to use these verses in a feeble effort to defend the unbiblical practice of infant baptism, arguing that the children of believers are made holy and included in the covenant of grace through the faith of their parents. As the argument goes, God worked redemptively through biological families in the Old Testament and continues to do so in the New Testament to an even greater degree. But attractive as that interpretation may be on the surface, for those of us who are Christian parents, it simply does not work theologically. For if we are to accept this idea of covenant children, we must be consistent in our application of the text and accept the idea of covenant spouses. And if we are going to go ahead and baptize the infant children of believers on the basis of this verse, we will have to be consistent in our application of the text and baptize the unbelieving spouses as well. As far as I can tell, that is a move that nobody of any theological or denominational stripe is willing to make. Paul's teaching here in these verses has been taken in some very odd directions. But I think that the main point that Paul is getting across is crystal clear. In a home and a family where one of the parents is a faithful Christian believer, God is pleased to manifest the presence and power of His Spirit so that the unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving children are, as it were, placed in the way of God's grace and put under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is, of course, no guarantee that they are among the elect of God or that they will eventually be saved. But on the other hand, there is a good chance that they are and that God will work redemptively and graciously to bring the entire family into the kingdom of God. And if you've been around the church long enough, you will know that God in His grace and mercy has often done this kind of thing in the past and will continue to do so for the glory of His name and to the praise of of His mercy. Brothers and sisters, lest you walk away from these concluding verses with the impression that it is okay for you to pursue a romantic relationship with a non-believer because the end justifies the means, let me tell you very plainly on the authority of God's Word, it is not okay. Christian teenagers, Christian singles, it is not okay for you to date non-believers. And if you are already in a relationship like that, my pastoral counsel to you is to break off that relationship before it gets any more serious than it already is. Missionary dating is a very, very bad idea. Even more important than that is it's an unbiblical idea. It dishonors the Lord. And it sets you up for a potential disaster later later on down the road. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul tells the church not to be unequally yoked with non-believers and we would do very well to heed his advice. Now it is true there are many healthy mixed marriages. There are many wonderful non-believers who are just as loving and dedicated as anyone else. And it is also true that God sometimes works in these situations to bring the non-believer to faith, but that does not give you carte blanche to be disobedient or to make choices that are disobedient and sinful. And if you're here this morning and are already in a mixed marriage like the one described in our text, my advice to you, Paul's advice to you, is to love your spouse with the love of Christ and to boldly live out your Christian faith inside of your home and to pray earnestly and unceasingly for the conversion of your spouse and your children. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's always hope. And we must never, ever give up hope. Marriage, brothers and sisters, is a stunning and a beautiful reflection of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. And because of that connection, we must all as Christians take our marriages very seriously. And we must strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect the glorious gospel of God's grace in all of our relationships with one another. Amen.